You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. We want to acknowledge that as the COVID-19 pandemic evolves, the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine Division of Continuing Professional Development wants to acknowledge and thank the hundreds of faculty members, medical residents, healthcare professionals, and frontline staff who are working in an extraordinarily stressful conditions in the healthcare system in order to provide the best care possible. If this stress is becoming overwhelming, please talk to a colleague or call a colleague. And in BC, you can call the Physician Health Program at 1-800-663-6729. We cannot thank you enough for the challenge you are undertaking. This free webinar tonight is being offered with that in mind. And without further delay, let's get started with tonight's session. I'd like to now pass you over to our first presenter, Dr. Lisa Honey from the Canadian Medical Protective Association, CMPA. Dr. Honey, over to you. Please introduce yourself and take it away. Thank you, Bruce. I'm just going to start by uh, sharing my screen. All right. So I'm going to be talking to you tonight about uh, medical legal considerations for the provision of virtual care during the pandemic. Uh, my, my background is uh, obstetrics and gynecology. I've uh, worked as a community OBGYN for 18 years, uh, was department chief, medical director of uh, a large level two center. So I've definitely been in the thick of things. Uh, been with the CMPA now for a couple of years full time. So... By way of uh, disclosure, as a full-time employee of the CNPA, I have no conflicts of interest. What I'm hoping to cover today is uh, taking a, a deeper dive into uh, virtual care uh, patient encounters and uh, really describing physicians' obligations during these uh, virtual care encounters. And I also want to spend some time on appreciating the meaning of reasonable care within the, uh, the context of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And I really do have a secondary agenda here, and it's to answer your questions. And I'm hoping that I can help to allay some of your concerns and some of your fears. Uh, we know that the frontline positions are uh, facing enormous stress and anxiety and fear about uh, what's, what's happening in the world and uh, being looked to to uh, provide answers for our patients. So at the CMPA, please know that we're here to support you. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to pick up the phone. Sometimes it's just nice to be able to speak to another physician about your concerns. But it's not always practical to pick up the phone and call CMPA. So when you're really questioning what's the right thing to do, I encourage you to just go back to basics. And what I mean by back to basics is think about what's in the best interest of the patient. I do have a duty of care to this patient and I can't abandon them. Reasonableness is something that I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about. 
So what does it mean to be a reasonable physician? In, in our minds, a reasonable physician applies a rational thinking process to the problem. And that thinking process is guided by principles and professional duties. So wherever you do land in your informed decision-making process, just be sure that you back it up with some good documentation about how you arrived at that decision and, uh, and leave your intellectual footprint, leave your documentation in the chart, and as well, document the context that you're dealing with. And in this time of, uh, of the COVID pandemic, communication is critical not only communicating with our peers and our hospitals and our clinics, but communicating with our patients. Uh, they're just as scared and worried and anxious as we are. And uh, the more we can reach out to them, the more we can, uh, we can help to allay some of their, their concerns that they will get the surgery that they need. It just may not be in a, in a, a timely fashion. Finally, documentation. Uh, I know no self-respecting CMPA physician would, uh, would, would leave a talk without talking about documentation, but it's even more critical now than it ever was. Documenting uh, a thought process in, in the context within which we're working. So the idea of our limited resources and, uh, and limited PPE, mm -hmm. uh, we need to document the context that we're working in and uh, document what we've done to, to be advocates for our patients and uh, how we've, uh, we've provided uh, a rational decision-making process. So let's dive into uh, virtual care. One of the big considerations about uh, virtual care, and we've, we've really been thrown into this at a, at a rapid rate. Uh, many people have, have no experience with, uh, with virtual care, and all of a sudden, uh, it's, it's the majority of what we're doing. So one of the first things that you need to consider when you're having a virtual care encounter with a patient is it's not the same as face-to-face. There certainly are uh, concerns about security and privacy of healthcare information. And that de does depend a little bit on the platform that you're using. Certainly the phone is, uh, is, is reasonably secure, but uh, you know, face, FaceTime and, and other, other platforms that aren't secure do have a lot of privacy uh, concerns. I know that in BC, a lot of you are using uh, Zoom Healthcare, and that's been vetted through the Ministry of Health. Uh, but anything that's uh, that's internet-based does have this risk of being of healthcare information being intercepted or obtained by third parties. So patients need to understand that, and they need to consent to the virtual care encounter. The other big piece about consent is that the patients need to understand the limits of care with a virtual care encounter. Uh, it goes without saying, you can't do a physical exam over the phone. You can't judge mood. You can't judge uh, body language. And uh, so patients need to understand that if there's worsening of their symptoms, that they need to be seen in person. And uh, the backup plan is always going to be the, uh, the nearest emergency department. 
Um, one other thing to mention about cons uh, consent is that it, it's okay to, to delegate that to your medical office assistant. And um, if, if that's done, though, just make sure that you revisit that issue with the patient just to make sure it's an informed consent process and they've had, had the ability to ask any questions. So privacy, another consideration with, uh, with virtual care. If you're calling a patient uh, and uh, they're, in, they're in the middle of a, a, a grocery store, uh, not an ideal time to, uh, to be talking with them. So you need to make sure that you're in a private space when you're speaking to your patients and uh, that you're not being overheard by family members or office staff. Uh, but you also need to make sure that the patient's in a private place and maybe it's leaving the grocery store and going and sitting in their car. Uh, the other thing is you need to know uh, who else is listening in on that call or who is, who is uh, outside of you of the camera listening in on that uh, virtual care encounter. Uh, and, and it's important to ask your, ask your patients that and document Uh, limits to care, I've already alluded to. Face-to-face uh, -face, uh, encounters are not the same as virtual care encounters, and uh, the limit being that we can't do a fulsome physical exam. So if you do feel that uh, during the uh, virtual care encounter on history that you really think this patient needs a physical, physical exam, if you're not able to rebook that patient with yourself for an in-person assessment, then you need to make sure that you uh, you have them seen by a colleague, uh, an, an assessment clinic, or the emergency department. And finally, uh, my favorite topic of documentation. Uh, make sure that you're documenting their consent and that you're documenting the uh, that you've obtained the identity of the patient. We always talk about two 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 factor patient identification when we're uh, in hospitals and clinics. You need to do that on the phone as well. Uh, so make sure that you've, uh, you've documented that uh, you're speaking to the right patient, documented who else is listening in on the call, and, uh, and document as you would uh, any other clinical encounter. Uh, the, other, the other piece being that you need to document uh, the platform that you're using and the context that you're using it in. And, and again, it, uh, memory fades with time, so it's worthwhile documenting where we are in the COVID pandemic and, and the resource limitations that we're facing at this time. So the good news is that uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there's a lot of published standards out there. Uh, again, I'm, I'm impressed at how quickly these have all come about. Uh, but this, this is a, uh, a national guideline put out by uh, CMA, CCFP, and the Royal College. And uh, it's a great resource. It gives you, um, uh, gives you a lot of uh, very practical how-to information. And uh, this, this specifically, I've, I've alluded to already, but the idea that um, if, if during the, the encounter you feel that this, this patient needs a physical exam, uh, you can't compromise this, the uh, standard of care. You need to have that patient seen. Either rebook them with yourself or have them seen at an assessment clinic, assessment center, or the ER. 
And uh, given that most of you listening to this webinar are from BC, uh, I think that this is a, a fabulous resource and this is available on the uh, BC Doctors uh, uh, Medical Association website. And uh, it's a virtual care toolkit. And it's, it's brilliant. It, it, it walks you through little vignettes about how to obtain consent and gives you little, uh, little, little speeches that you can, you can give and, uh, and document. Uh, so if you haven't seen this, uh, this uh, virtual care tool, I would really encourage you to, uh, to take a look at the uh, Doctors of BC website. So things are changing rapidly and it's sometimes hard to keep up with, uh, with what's happening. But a lot of things aren't changing. Certainly our duty of care. We went into this profession to look after sick people and we cannot abandon our patients. We sometimes have conflicting obligations. We have ob obligations to the institutions that we work for, the uh, emergency department rosters. We have societal obligations to conform with public health directives but we also have obligations to ourselves and to our families. And finally, uh, standard of care. Remember that standard of care uh, is only gonna be judged in retrospect in a court of law and standard of care can be contextual. So if, if you are being tried in a court of law, it's important that you know that the standard of care is set not only by the colleges and your professional uh, associations, but by your peers. And you're going to be judged uh, if uh, you're going to be judged in a court of your peers, basically. So as long as you're being a reasonable, prudent physician, uh, you would be compared to a physician in similar circumstances in a similar context. So we haven't been here before, and we're figuring this all out together, as is the legal system. So we're being asked to, uh, to somehow find the balance between what's our duty of care and our role of gatekeeper as our resource limitations uh, become more problematic. It's important that we stay on top of what's going on with our institutional policies, our triage protocols, and our communication plans. And finally, I think it's really important that you understand that you're not in this alone. Uh, there, are, there are directives, there are ethical frameworks that, uh, that can be followed. And uh, when in doubt, ask a colleague, call the CMPA, talk to people. Uh, don't feel that, uh, that you're in this by yourself. So that's all I have to say at this point. I look forward to addressing some of your questions uh, after we hear from uh, our uh, colleagues at the college. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. And uh, we will get to the questions after the presenters from the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons present. I, again, I just wanted to um, re-emphasize the resource, that website. Uh, if you Google Doctors Technology Office, and uh, go on the left side of the menu to help technology resources, and then click on virtual care. You will access the, the uh, virtual care guide that uh, Lisa 
uh, mentioned in there that's uh, specific to BC. So thank you very much, Lisa. Um, and I want to turn it over to Derek. Thank you. And I'll just share my screen as well. There we go. And good evening to everyone. And thank you for joining us tonight. It's lovely to have an opportunity to engage with you on such an interesting time in our careers. Um, I'm Derek Puttister. I'm a, I'm a new deputy registrar for uh, complaints and practice investigations here at the college. Uh, I'm coming from Ontario, where I practiced psychiatry for about 20 years, uh, both uh, adult and child and adolescent psychiatry, and uh, have been involved in um, occupational health, physician health for many years as well. And it's lovely to also have this opportunity to spend time with you as, as a new member of, uh, of your community. Um, I've listed some of the uh, things that could be viewed as um, uh, relevant in a presentation like this as I've transitioned from many activities to now working uh, for the college. So that's purely there for disclosure. And these, uh, these relationships have all ended. And our objectives really mirror that of the CMPAs. We're, we're here to highlight some of the regulatory issues related to COVID-19 and, and also to offer, um, you know, as, as much uh, reassurance and also respect for um, the, the wonderful job that uh, physicians have done on, during the pandemic. We, we thought it might be helpful to, to remind the audience of the role and mandate of the college. I'm sure this is familiar to many of you, but really our, our, our regulatory responsibility is to serve the public by, by regulating physicians and surgeons. And, and as you know, we look at issues related to standards of practice and conduct, uh, competency and fitness, responding to complaints, helping with quality assurance. So, so really all of that from the lens uh, and the laser-like focus on patient protection and safety. Um, we appreciate that there's a, um, a very understandable need to also advocate for the profession. That is not our, our mandate, but we're very aware of the issues affecting the profession. Um, and, uh, you know, in the course of discussions that the college has with, uh, you know, the Ministry of Health, uh, regional health authorities, and of course, our, our colleagues at Doctors at BC, we, we, we raise issues as we hear about them and, um, and talk about them frequently. Um, Heidi, did you want to say anything about this quote from Dr. Henry? Uh, no, other than um, it is, uh, I think, becoming um, Bonnie's mantra. And I actually know people who meditate and use it uh, as their own personal mantra. And I think that we all owe a, a deep a debt of gratitude to Dr. Henry for her wisdom, her being the true servant, humble leader in this difficult time, and the fact that we've really benefited from the team that she has brought together to truly flatten the curve in British Columbia. Thank you. So a couple of things we, we just wanted to highlight. The college has been active in, um, in trying to respond uh, to the pandemic in, in practical ways. Uh, very early, um, the uh, uh, our work in, in optimizing virtual care focused on looking at our uh, guidelines and standards. And we made a number of changes to the telemedicine practice standard. 
Um, I won't repeat what you've heard from uh, Dr. Honey, um, but you can see here on the list that uh, we've, you know, we really mirror a lot of the wisdom that CMPA is uh, sharing uh, with you. Um, and of course, reminding people of the need for you know, appropriate physical examination, uh, you know, making, making it clear what follow-up expectations, including after-hours care, needs to occur, and, and, and being very thoughtful, careful, mindful about uh, what needs to occur for timely uh, in-person assessments um, of your patients. You also uh, might be interested in knowing that uh, all the regulatory agencies in the country are, are very interested in optimizing virtual care, and, uh, and Dr. Otter is leading a, a working group on telemedicine uh, with our colleagues around the country. We also know that um, lots of people are, are very mindful about the, the process of returning to practice. Um, of course, there's a number of uh, safety considerations uh, for our patients to be carefully considered if people aren't already familiar with the uh, BC Center for Disease Control. I mean, I would encourage you to check out their website. It's, it's really quite rich offering as much uh, information as I think is available um, at the moment. It does um, update frequently. So for people who haven't had an opportunity to look at some of the resources and services that are available, um, I'd encourage you to have uh, some time to do so. We, we also know that there's been a number of changes um, uh, both nationally and provincially related uh, to legislation. Um, nationally, Health Canada amended the uh, Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which really allowed our colleagues in, uh, in pharmacies to, to you know, extend and transfer prescriptions and to also look at how to deliver um, controlled substances in ways that they didn't have uh, before. Um, we've also seen some uh, nimbleness in our ability to give verbal and faxed orders uh, for controlled substances. Um, that said, there are still some things in place in, uh, in BC. Uh, duplicate prescriptions are still uh, in place. And, and it is important to bear in mind that uh, you know, when, when you have an opportunity to deliver um, original uh, prescriptions to pharmacies, that ought to be done. Um, here at the college, the college um, adapted uh, some of the standards that were in place uh, in its safe prescribing of opioids and sedatives um, uh, standard. Um, and I've already mentioned the telemedicine uh, standards. So if you haven't had a chance to look at those updated standards, I would encourage you to do so. Um, and of course, we're, we're aware that uh, doctors in uh, British Columbia are doing um, what they always do. They're assessing the needs of their patients. They're assessing risks and benefits and using very good uh, professional judgments. So we would encourage people uh, to keep those um, um, high standards up. In terms of uh, prescribing and telemedicine, we've um, put on our website in our COVID-19 update section some particular considerations that uh, you may find helpful. Um, for non-controlled medications, we're, uh, we're reminding people that there, um, there's a great opportunity to meet with your patients either um, by phone or virtually um, for renewal of, um, of non-controlled substances. Um, we have had some feedback from our colleagues in pharmacies that they are receiving some prescriptions uh, that are photographs um, or text messages, and uh, that's created some concern as that's, uh, that's beyond uh, their uh, standards um, that they can uh, work with them. So we just encourage people to bear that in, uh, in mind. Uh, for controlled substances, we've also provided some guidance um, um, I'm reminding people that, you know, there's that, that, that delicate dance we need to do between having a longitudinal relationship with patients and being mindful of their unique needs and, and uh, being mindful of safety and risk uh, 
hopefully will be of value to you in your work. And there's also been some um, advice um, for opioid agonist uh, treatment, and that also um, is in line with what uh, um, the uh, BC um, Substance Use Center of Excellence uh, has recommended. We also encourage people to continue to take uh, full um, prescription histories uh, in your work in virtual care and to check the uh, permanent uh, profile um, uh, to ensure really safe prescribing. Um, I don't think we will have much more to add to documentation other than to remind people that our standards um, haven't changed in this regard. And I think Dr. Honey's giving you uh, good advice here. In terms of uh, PPE, um, we, we appreciate this is a, um, a critical and sensitive uh, issue. In terms of uh, looking at risk assessments and duty to care, we, uh, we would encourage you to look at the BC Center for Disease Control websites. They have uh, very good guidelines uh, that may guide you in your, in your decision making for your clinics and practice settings uh, for a number of unique populations long-term care facilities, et cetera. We also know that there are many questions you may have around the PPE supply in British Columbia, and we're mindful that's a sensitive issue. Um, but as you have throughout this uh, pandemic, continue to use your professional judgment um, to, to work your way through those uh, difficult choices. We also have had uh, some complaints uh, from, from, the, from the public um, about healthcare workers uh, presenting to work um, with a fever or other signs of illness. Um, we just encourage people to, to be very careful and, and kind with themselves. Um, if you have questions around you know, whether or not you, you should be uh, you know, presenting to work, um, if you have uh, particular risk issues yourself, we would, we would really encourage you to be working closely with, uh, with your primary care provider or other care providers to, to do that honest assessment of your own risk. And of course, if you're not well, we would be encouraging you to take care of yourself and, and uh, take care of yourself vigorously. We, we uh, published in our College Connector um, a little bulletin about um, disclosing information about COVID-19 patients on social media. Um, our advice, as you uh, likely um, could anticipate, was to not do this. Um, unfortunately, we have had some complaints from members of public that um, there have been some disclosures on social media and, um, and some, uh, some allegations of uh, safety becoming an issue uh, for said patients. So we, we would just like to remind uh, people of this and, uh, and to, uh, to not uh, disclose any information about COVID-19 patients, even if it is anonymized. Hi. Great. Uh, thank you, Derek, and I uh, want to uh, thank uh, Lisa as well for participating. It's always a pleasure to work with our colleagues from CMPA. Uh, we um, sometimes sit on opposite sides of the tables, but more often than not, we actually meet at the middle of the table and put the patient uh, first and foremost. So thank you very much for that. And thank you, Bruce, as well for moderating this evening. Uh, by way of background, I'm a UBC grad and did uh, family practice out in Coquitlam for 18 years before joining the college, and I'm currently a registrar at the college. I've uh, been spending most of my time for the last eight to 10 weeks um, sitting at a computer and going from meeting with people face-to-face -to, -face to figuring out how to do my work in regulation uh, through virtual technology. The first challenge we had was actually getting uh, emergency registration up and running in early March. I was um, phoned by Dr. Henry who said she needed to have more public health officers in British Columbia in order to do the work that she needed to do and that was really where we started to, to get things going. 
we recognized that most of the work that we had done uh, planning around emergency registration contemplated something happening in BC that would uh, impact uh, the work in BC and we would be able to call people in from Alberta, Ontario, maybe even Washington State to help out with uh, providing medical care in BC. And um, we realized very quickly that the idea that we would be able to knock on somebody else's door to find practitioners was was very limited. And worse, uh, we might be facing uh, what was uh, in those very early days a, a, a very big disaster in Italy and a mounting disaster in New York City. So uh, we realized that we needed to do something different and uh, through our connection with uh, FAMRAC and our International Association of Medical Regulators, we were seeing that other jurisdictions in the world were actually moving to call back recently retired physicians to come back and help out with uh, surge planning. So we, uh, we sent out a, an email to uh, physicians who had retired within the last two years and invited them to connect with their local health authority. And uh, if they uh, were needed and wanted to come back to practice, uh, we would do so. And I am just so pleased that 72 retired physicians stepped forward and said, yes, they would be prepared to be relicensed and, uh, and return to clinical work uh, as needed with their local health authority. I also want to have a shout out to the Canadian Medical Protective Association who made it very easy for these individuals to become members again. And um, CMPA was good enough as well to extend them um, a class of membership at a very reduced rate so that they uh, weren't going to be out of pocket to pay some of the more expensive dues that other people might be paying. And I, I just really want to thank CMPA for being part of the solution for helping us in uh, British Columbia get on with uh, preparing for surge capacity uh, in, in British Columbia. I'll take the next one, Derek. Uh, there we go. Uh, um, the other thing we did is said that, hmm, what else can we do to make the, those individuals who are currently working in the system be more available to the system? We have a class of registration known as academic registration, and these are for individuals who come in and they're, they're basically brought, brought in on appointment uh, with the dean at the Faculty of Medicine of UBC. And they actually, because they have, uh, don't have a required, they actually get academic certification from either the Royal College or the College of Family Physicians. They don't have to take those exams, but they're often recognized for their research, publication, and teaching work. And they're required to limit their uh, clinical practice to uh, 40%. And we said during this emergency, they would be relieved of that requirement. And indeed, many people have found that the teaching obligations have dropped off or the research has actually come to a standstill uh, because of COVID. 19. So uh, we've said that, that that would be an opportunity to increase capacity. We've also said that those people who are here working on clinical fellowships, which normally have a three-year time limit, we've agreed that if they want to have those extended, we've added those on for an additional um, six months. Uh, we also recognize that there were physicians working in health authorities who likely weren't going to be um, uh, working in their usual capacity when urgent uh, procedures, urgent uh, um, 
or elective surgeries were all being canceled, uh, health authorities asked us if their existing physicians could be redeployed within their health authority to do different work. And we said yes. So one of the bylaws that the college has that says that if you're going to change your scope of practice, you need to contact the college in advance. And there's a number of procedures that flow from that. And we said to the health authority that if you are privileging this individual to do something different and you're going to take responsibility for that, we will remove the obligation to get in touch with the college. The other thing we said to the health authorities that those physicians who weren't current for clinical practice, but nonetheless held physician positions uh, in employment relationships with the health authority, that if they wanted to deploy them to go back and work under supervision, uh, they were free to do so. So we really wanted to make sure that we could create as much capacity in the system uh, in those very early days of March uh, in order to, to deal with the um, uh, potential for uh, what was uh, an evolving uh, Italy and New York situation with COVID-19 uh, overwhelming the healthcare system. Uh, I just want to thank people who've stepped up, uh, acknowledge the hard work done by so many individuals, physicians, nursing, healthcare staff at the hospital, the cleaners, the first attenders. Uh, it's, it's been phenomenal work and um, we're just really grateful to see that the number of new infections is dropping and that it would seem that the uh, efforts to flatten the curve in BC have, have really been quite successful. So many of these things that we planned, in fact, are probably not going to be need to be implemented at this point. Uh, we may very well be in another sort of steady state that becomes our new, new normal. And uh, we'll sit back and uh, closely watch things to see whether or not we need to uh, invoke any emergency registration measures again in the future, uh, should there be a second wave of uh, COVID in the community. Uh, listed here are some resources for uh, participants today. Uh, as always, college website, www.cpsbc.ca. I want to remind registrants that we uh, have a library service, a, a uh, concierge boutique library service for people who really are looking for COVID-19 literature searches. I know that our library staff have been responding to uh, requests from uh, clinicians around the province literally seven days a week to make sure that the best of evidence and uh, research can be provided to you uh, uh, as quickly as possible. Again, as said previously, uh, we want people to make sure that they're checking the BC CDC website frequently and often. This is very much a changing environment and as well the uh, information from the Office of the Provincial Health Officer. So I think that concludes our part of the evening. And I think Bruce, uh, we turn it back to you um, and look forward to having some uh, audience participation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Heidi and, and Derek. And I just wanted to mention again to the audience that um, not only are the resources and the links available on the sites of CMBA and uh, the BC College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons, but also links uh, can be from the UBC CPD uh, webinars, uh, COVID-19 resources page and resource hub. So you can uh, Google UBC CPD webinars and be able to access information, including webinar recordings uh, and summaries, as well as all the tools and resources that are listed. So again, thank you very much, everybody. Um, I uh, have taken the prerogative of uh, when I looked through the questions, um, I had to smile because uh, somebody caught us on, on something there that I appreciate if uh, you could comment to. 
And um, the question was that the webinar was described as professional, ethical, and legal. Um, there's a good mixture of medical, admin, and legal. And uh, the people asking questions were wondering where was the ethical expert? And I wondered if you could comment to that from your organization perspective. Sure, I, I, um, I, I fully admit I am uh, not um, an, an ethics expert. Uh, but I do want to say that at the college, we, we actually do have ethics expertise and, and we have a member of our senior team who's actually a master's degree in ethics. We also have um, uh, uh, patient relations and uh, uh, professional standards and ethics committee that is populated with people who actually hold titles as either bioethics or medical ethics. So everything in our um, uh, communication that we do in our standard setting uh, through all the rigorous medical lens, and it does absolutely go through an ethical lens, and it also goes through a legal lens. Uh, at the college, we also have um, uh, four lawyers on staff who who help us uh, as we come forward with um, uh, professional standards and guidance that we provide to the profession. I just want to note as well that we do reference the CMA Code of Ethics and Professionalism uh, when we go through our standard setting exercises. Thank you. Um, and the next question is one that um, has actually been around uh, since before the pandemic um, and relates to the standalone platforms that deliver virtual care. Do you have any comments about patient privacy or the quality of care uh, provided through the companies that provide uh, this kind of virtual care? Or does the college or CMBA have any concerns or anything that's on their plate that they are considering or uh, addressing in the future? Who wants to start? Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, we we've made it very clear in our um, in our practice standard around doing uh, virtual care or telemedicine that that we regulate people, we don't rec regulate technology. And um, I, it's my understanding that the uh, more, if you like, commercial ventures that are are have platforms to deliver telemedicine services, most of them have actually delivered privacy impact assessments to relevant uh, provincial privacy officers, and that's usually the expectation if uh, platforms are going to be uh, used. My understanding is, is it um, Zoom? for health or something that's being used in, in BC. That would be an example of one that has probably met some level of privacy. Uh, it's, it's undergone a privacy impact assessment. But I do think that there are lots of, of um, uh, things that physicians might use that may not meet privacy expectations. And that's part of their own due diligence that they think about should they use to, choose to use a commercial platform. And um, dare I say, uh, Telemedicine has been going on for years, and it's called the telephone. And uh, sometimes even that may not meet privacy expectations because you never know who might be listening in on either end of that. So um, it, it is a concern. It's something physicians should put their mind to. And they would be well-versed to, again, check with the Doctors of BC um, Technology Office, see what advice they may have to offer. I suspect CMPA has some more to offer, though, as well about uh, privacy concerns. Yeah, and I, I think uh, especially what we're, the question was about where those virtual platforms 
that are only delivering um, virtual care and not uh, doing any in-person. So essentially acting as a virtual walk-in clinic in there. Lisa, do you have any comments from the CMPA's perspective about any legal issues that you're noting with that kind of a platform? Uh, again, we, we want to avoid uh, talking about specific uh, platforms, but uh, if, if you are using an unsecured uh, platform, your patient consent becomes critical. And uh, I spoke to that a little bit uh, during the, uh, the talk. Uh, you know, email and, uh, and, and texting and things like that, are we know they're not secure. We know that health information can be, uh, could be intercepted. Uh, but in, in desperate times, sometimes we, we may not have a choice. And uh, as long as your patient is well aware of the concerns about, uh, about privacy. So I'm going to refrain from, from speaking directly about a particular product, uh, but a secured platform that's encrypted end-to-end -end ideally is your, your best bet. I think most people have the concerns about uh, longitudinal care and the interruption in continuity of care, especially when many physicians are seeing uh, some decrease in patient flow and feeling that there are platforms that um, are bleeding their patients away and having some concerns about that. Um, but uh, certainly respect. Derek, did you have anything to add um, from the college's perspective? I, think, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of consent in, in that process. And I'm explaining to uh, to people the, the risks and benefits of, of using um, those services and, and uh, can never be underdone. And in shared decision-making, it's, it's a worthwhile conversation to have and document carefully. Well, certainly it was something that um, is a concern now and was a concern before. Um, and will could be, I think, continue to be on people's radar into the future. Um, many, the next question is that uh, is around PPE. And I, I think rather than um, talking about the process of how to procure appropriate PPE, this one is a question um, acknowledging that uh, probably the need for PPE is going to continue. And um, what are the... Uh, the regulatory and or legal implications of a patient requiring an inpatient exam and the physician does not have the appropriate PPE available. What would can, a physician do in that point? Sure, go ahead, Lisa. Yeah. I, I can jump in on that one. Uh, the, the important thing is that uh, I we've got to be a reasonable physician and no reasonable physician is going to put their health at risk with, with absolutely no PPE. Uh, the, the problem is that we do have a duty of care to our patients and we can't abandon them. So if we're unable to deal with something virtually and this patient needs an assessment and you are not able to provide it because your clinic is closed or you don't have any PPE or you don't have any office staff, you need to, to appropriately redirect that patient to an assessment center, a colleague, or the ER for their physical exam. Yeah, I, um, 
from the college point of view, uh, we would echo um, that in the context of providing face-to-face -face care, we have no expectation that a physician put their own health at risk, and absolutely the patient's health must not be put at risk as well. And you can imagine, for instance, if you have a crowded waiting room and people aren't physical distancing and somebody comes in with COVID symptoms who's not been screened out, I mean, you're putting people at risk. So we know that PPE and access to PPE is a very, um, it's, it's a big concern for all healthcare providers in British Columbia. And we are waiting for further direction from the PHO office about how physicians will be able to start um, doing more face-to-face -face care in a way that's safe for themselves, safe for their, their staff, safe for the patients, and uh, also um, get further information about where they should be able to access PPE. But this is going to be a very deliberate, conservative approach to providing more face-to-face -face care while making sure there's adequate PPE supplies. And again, it, it will be about doing risk assessments of patients to determine if they're, um, you know, have they been travel history, exposure to known COVID patients, making sure that patients are screened both at the time they're booked to come into the office and when they attend at the office, that they aren't suffering a fever or any other COVID related symptoms. And that, um, uh, that the appropriate uh, personal protective uh, equipment is worn and utilized at the time. I think we're seeing some novel and interesting things coming forward, such as reuse of N95 masks, but uh, we know that there are shortages and that there is an ethical framework published on the BC CDC website about how that equipment will be rationed out. And uh, we at the college will, uh, we, we, we give you our commitment that as soon as we know more, we will make that an email that will go out to all registrants in British Columbia. I, I'm... Um getting uh, some feedback and, and certainly the next question um, relates to my question prior to the PPE uh, and certainly it, it again sort of is looking at um, the virtual care platforms that only do virtual care and certainly uh, in my work as a, a peer mentor and with a lot of conversations I'm having with my colleagues around the province, um, we're seeing a decrease in uh, patient flow and their practices. And some of that people are attributing to uh, some competition with the virtual care only platforms. And uh, the question is uh, around uh, is or can the college do anything uh, to support physicians um, who are seeing a decrease in their patient flow volume um, and having concerns around uh, their ability to, to cover their overhead. Um, not only is, can the college um, examine this, but uh, are issues in uh, what people are trying to do to compensate for that that you're seeing that might be potential problems uh, for those physicians or practices? Uh, thanks. I think there's really kind of two issues here. Uh, mm -hmm. One is sort of the the financial support, and sorry that that really doesn't uh, touch uh, us as a, a regulator. But I, I do want to acknowledge that um, I think the doctors of BC has done a very good job of um, um, uh, promoting patients understanding they can still contact their family doctors, and I think that's an important message to get out there. Uh, and I I would look encourage the, the profession to connect with their, their advocacy body for assistance in that regard. And I don't 
for a minute uh, want to downplay the um, significant distress that COVID has caused on uh, the current business models for the viability of family practice. And um, as a citizen in British Columbia, I really hope full service family practice is a viable model into the future because I need healthcare like everybody else. Um, with respect to standalone um, uh, virtual care that isn't kind of connected with uh, a, a bricks and mortar, uh, we have had a several college connector articles about how we don't think that's the best care model. Uh, we all know that you can temporize or provide advice to a patient, but it's nice to know that you can say, and if this happens, call me back or call back the clinic or call back the medical home. And that continuity of care, uh, certainly in many, many patient situations, is, um, is an important value in how we deliver quality medical services. That being said, uh, there are many medical conditions where one and done is, is adequate and fine, and, and I think that patients uh, do seek those out. Uh, they sometimes seek out something from a, another provider because they actually don't want their other doctor to know about it. So you, you have those sort of um, uh, uh, delicate patient-centered and uh, patient-driven uh, choices that go with it. So uh, just to say that quality uh, is absolutely top of the mind for the college. And one of the tasks that uh, FEMRAC, the Federation of Medical Regulatory Authorities of Canada, is taking away is once we've seen this massive pivot with the medical profession to be able to deliver virtual care, we're going to go back and say, what are the quality issues? What do we need to put our mind to? How do we make sure that, that virtual care is providing the best possible care? Recognizing the debate is no longer virtual care versus face-to-face -face care. It's about how do we do both in a medical home, whether it's specialist or community care, that uh, is patient-centered and, and meets, then meets the patients and puts them first. So absolutely. Um, so look for that uh, coming to you soon. Um, and we also are really trying to make sure that our peer practice assessment program will start to evaluate uh, virtual care as a component of anybody's practice, because again, we expect everybody uh, to be utilizing virtual care to this to the extent that it makes sense out of their practice. So I, that isn't maybe all the answers people were looking for, but um, it's uh, uh, a new world, early days, and we will be uh, turning our mind to that. Thank you, Heidi. Um, and I, I think uh, continuing on from that um, uh, conversation about virtual care, uh, is um, what are the consent and documentation requirements for virtual care? I know many of my colleagues are uh, don't have the uh, hard copy of electronic communication consent that CMPA and, and the college uh, both have had for several years, um, and they don't have that on file, and so they are uh, getting verbal consent from their patients, but they're finding even that process is a bit onerous and um, they often are skipping that um, and uh, feeling that having had verbal consent once is enough. And I wonder if you can comment to the requirements and uh, your thoughts around that. I'm happy to, to speak to that. Uh, verbal consent is, uh, is, is fine initially. If this is going to be an ongoing uh, relationship that you have with the patient, it probably is a good idea to make sure that you, you, you get that signed consent form. Uh, but a signed consent form is not consent. 
consent is the discussion that takes place. And uh, so, and, and again, that's where I, I would refer people to the Doctors of BC Medical Association website. They have, they have a beautiful uh, laid out script of, of this is how you obtain consent and this is what you can document in the chart. And the bottom line is your patient needs to understand the privacy and security issues of their health information and they need to understand the limits of virtual care. And, uh, and they'd need the opportunity to ask questions. And uh, that's, that's, that's really all. It's not complicated. It can be delegated to your medical office assistant. And uh, it's, does it need to be done every time? Uh, probably not, if this is an ongoing uh, uh, relationship that you have with the patient. Uh, but uh, getting, that, getting that signed piece of paper is not a consent discussion. Thank you. Um, right now, there's uh, certainly some concerns um, from patients around going to work, uh, whether they we're hearing from this, the U.S. about concerns around people feeling they have to go to work even if they're sick. Um, and in the past, it's been a thorn in many people's side about the letter to the employer. Um, so what are the implications, the legal implications of a patient asking for a letter to the employer stating they're at high risk if infected by COVID, so they're not infected, and asking for the right to work at home? Any comments to that? And, and I would just add, to give you an out if you don't have an answer, we will be having a WorkSafe BC presentation that uh, goes into some of the processes and um, probably answers some of these questions uh, next week. Uh, so stay tuned for that if that doesn't fall in your jurisdiction to be able to answer that question. Um, so either Heidi or Derek or Lisa, do yeah. you have any comment? Yeah. I, I think there's two issues here. One is that as an employer, the physicians, and you listened to Bonnie's very carefully worded message this week, as an employer, you need to have a very strong policy that is understood by the people you employ that it's not acceptable to come to work sick. Like that, like that's just foundational. And uh, as an employer of 150 employees, in fact, we were discussing today how we would be um, retooling our current uh, uh, policies around that that it's it's not about oh that person's got a cold and they're faking it at home this is like it's it's not acceptable to come to work coughing and sneezing and or having a fever or anything like, like that that we just have to change that mindset so so that's one part i think that patients who they themselves are at risk that's really an occupational health and safety matter and they may need workplace accommodations which is really probably better um, uh, discussed through through uh, work safe bc and just to say uh you know somebody did family practice for 18 years i get that those sick notes are a pain um but but surely that's something you could do virtually if your patient really needs it thank you uh, and Lisa, are there any legal uh, implications um, from CMP's perspective? 
No, again, I, I think that this uh, these these notes about COVID are the same as 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 a note that that we have dealt with pre-COVID, and uh, the idea that uh, you can only give the information that you have, and uh, you can't you can't give misleading information, and uh, uh, you, you can you can only advocate for your patient so much. It's up to the to the employer to decide, given the facts that you provide in the note. And I, I just wanted to flag to the panel and to the audience that um, we are closing in on 8 o'clock and we have many more questions. Um, so as I had mentioned earlier, the panel has graciously consented to stay on an extra half hour to 8.30 and especially appreciate Dr. Honey who is uh, in the Eastern Tang zone and is now 11 o'clock, almost 11 o'clock at night. So thank you very much for thing on uh, Lisa. Um, the, um, an interesting uh, question has come up uh, and quickly risen to the top. Um, please discuss the issue of patients recording virtual encounters without disclosing. I, I got that one. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in this day and age, uh, we as physicians need to assume that we are potentially always being recorded. And uh, legally, as part of where the recording happening, uh, it's, it's not against the law without your consent to be recorded. Uh, having said that, uh, it's it's important that you you just always communicate your, with your patients as though you were being recorded. It's not against the law for them to do that, and uh, and they're probably doing it more than you realize. Yep. So behave as if it is it's always happening. Thank you. Um, can the college make a more definitive statement on the policy? Um, now, um, I think, especially in, in virtual care time, um, it's the policy surrounding the responsibility of specialists to contact patients regarding referrals. Yeah, um, and I appreciate this is um, uh, an, an issue that when we developed our professional guidelines, not standards, guidelines, um, was um, was contentious uh, with the profession. Uh, we have said that we we think it, the, the the specialist is in the best position to communicate with the patient particulars about the appointment. Uh, if the patient needs to prep for the appointment, or wear certain clothing for the appointment, or confirm forty eight hours ahead for the appointment, or if they don't show up, it's one hundred and fifty dollars fee. All of that, we think the specialist is in the best position for that. Um, but uh, we, we've made it a, a guideline and not a standard that's legally enforceable. And we just encourage uh, specialists and uh, family physician colleagues to work together in the best interests of their patients. Um, there may be times when actually the family doctor, maybe the family doctor speaks Croatian and the patient is Croatian and it might make sense for the family doctor to do all that with their patient because the specialist doesn't speak Croatian. I'm kind of making it up a bit, but um, it's really something that we hopefully that everybody will work together and that's really about collaborative care. But I'm sure um, Lisa probably has something more to say about this from the CMPA perspective. 
Lisa, you're muted. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. I don't really have anything more to add to that, Heidi. I think that uh, that the important thing is that uh, what's the right thing for the patient, and uh, that the specialists really do need to be to be cognizant of what's happening in their wait list, although they don't necessarily have a duty of care to the, the people that are on their wait list that they haven't seen. Uh, that, that hasn't really been tried out in a court of law. So um, be cognizant of what's happening. Be flexible. If the, uh, if the family physician is, is contacting you saying this patient's getting sicker and sicker, uh, needs to be seen, uh, you may need to move them up the queue. Uh, so you, you really do need to be aware of, uh, of what's happening and communicate with your patients. And I think that uh, the specialist, as you said, is in a better position to do that. And certainly uh, it, the professional courtesy and communication between physicians is, is really paramount in there. So thank you. Um, so... Um, I'm curious if the college has a date when new specific guidelines for physician in-person visits will be released. Um, and I'm presuming that probably that is a WorkSafe BC question around the guidelines uh, to follow in-person visits, again, which we'll be addressing next week. Is the college involved in any of those guidelines at all? Uh, no, um, we've been, we are in touch with the PHO office and, um, we all watch Bonnie's news conference every day. And, uh, we, we actually have a draft message that we have provided to the PHO office that we're waiting for them to review, edit and sign off on. And again, I just give my commitment that once we get an idea of what, um, relaxing, this is going to look like and what the expectations are around PPE and what the expectations are about cleaning your office as you have more patients coming through it. We'll get that to you as soon as possible. Derek, was there anything you might want to add to that? No, other than like just that message that as we know, we will share and I would be encouraging people to keep checking our website under the COVID-19 uh, tab. We'll share when, when we learn. Thank you both, and, and certainly I, I'm sure we'll hear more uh, next week from WorkSafe BC when they're talking about uh, some of those guidelines, much as they are doing with um, other industry uh, starting back up again. Um, can you speak to um, emailing uh, prescriptions and requisitions for imaging? Uh, certainly... Um, people are, are getting used to the idea of, have always used uh, uh, the written or the printed prescribing and uh, quite comfortable with the faxing. Uh, I'm curious about any comments about emailing um, either prescriptions or requisitions uh, to the various destinations. I'll, I'll jump in on that one. I think that uh, emailing, as I've said before, is not a secure platform at all. And uh, as much as I hate to uh, be endorsing the uh, the fax machine, it, uh, it 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 is more secure for us to be able to fax these requisitions uh, electronically. There are a lot of uh, e-fax solutions for the virtual care platforms. 
to be faxing these uh, uh, prescriptions to the pharmacy directly or the, uh, the imaging center directly. And, uh, you know, worse comes to worse, these can be mailed to patients. But uh, avoiding, again, with appropriate consent, if there's no other way to do it, uh, email's a backup, but it's certainly not, uh, not secure. And the, the health information is at risk of uh, being intercepted. Yeah, and I just flag, um, there's certainly some information on the doctor's technology site about e-faxing because some e-faxing solutions actually don't fax. They um, rely on email as a middleman. Um, so you have to be very sure. And some e-fax solutions actually store the fax on a, a U.S. server. Um, so please be sure that it is a Canadian server and actually using faxing. And the doctor's technology office can give you more information on that. So thank you. Um, a question uh, about, uh, and Heidi, you had uh, spoken to the recruitment of uh physicians for emergency registration. Um, can you comment to uh, some of the challenges that um, existing uh, BC family doctors or specialists um, are finding lacking work um, when uh, people are being given emergency registration um, when they're new or out of country? Um, um, just to clarify, the emergency registration has only been given to 72 physicians and all 72 of them previously held a full license in British Columbia, so they're, they're not new to BC and they're not IMGs. Um, we actually anticipate winding that up pretty soon because I think that uh, we've, we've seen that um, the tremendous planning that went into the surge capacity has, has not been needed. Uh, we've, we've had to say thank you to all those residents who are R5s and just about ready to graduate and finish the programs who are also stepping up to work independently. Um, but it uh, doesn't mean that wouldn't come back again if in the fall or some other time if, if we need it. But um, my understanding is that the 72 uh, retired physicians who've come back, they too have not been very busy. And I know it's the same uh, with the nursing college. I think they had about uh, just under 500 nurses come back from being retired and agree to step forward to, uh, to uh, be relicensed for the purposes of assisting with COVID-19. And again, they, they've not, not, not been deployed yet. So I suspect we'll be uh, uh, unrolling those things and then keeping our fingers crossed that we don't have to ever uh, do that again. And I, I just wanted to thank you. And I just wanted to flag for you that the uh, the virtual walk-in clinics uh, standalone that do nothing but virtual walk-in is quickly rising to the top again. Um, so it is certainly indicating that it is on people's minds. Um, and I do acknowledge that neither the college or CMPA um, can control that as long as they are following the appropriate regulations and security and privacy. But certainly, uh, I think one comment was that it is something that uh, certainly could be something that physicians could go to their advocate at, at the doctor's BC um, and connect with them to have further conversations with that. Uh, certainly, it is uh, something that's on people's minds. Um, 
I'm, I'm, it, it's nice to hear that it's on people's minds because I think that speaks to the, you know, the high quality care we want to offer our, yes. our patients. So what we can control is is the con continuation of our best practices, and if there are complaints, they will be investigated. And if there are concerns, we'd like to hear about them. Thank you. So I acknowledge that to the audience that we see those questions in there and that uh, we may not currently have all the answers for you on that. Um, and uh, so um, the next question again, I think really goes back to uh, more uh, a question about WorkSafe, about when can people start doing some of the preventative care again? And I believe that's really out of um, the jurisdiction of CM, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, but question to you, Lisa, um, what does happen if um, screening and preventative care is not done? And as a result of that, say a pap smear comes back um, that the patient has wanted to get done, hasn't been able to get into their doctor to do because there's no in-person, and it turns out that it, it ends up being uh, maybe an aggressive cancer that hasn't been dealt with. Um, from the CMPA's perspective, um, what are your thoughts there? Sorry, I've muted myself again. It's, it's a problem that relates to basically resource allocation. And uh, when, when we're not doing preventative care, it's because we don't have a stable supply of PPE. And, uh, you know, are there going to be lawsuits about this? Potentially. Uh, but uh, with respect to uh, limited resources, there really is not a lot of case law. And uh, there is uh, one case in Ontario, and I'm just looking for the, uh, for the wording for you. Um, there was an Ontario court that, uh, that addressed resource scarcity. And uh, the quote is that physicians can't reasonably be expected uh, to provide care which is unavailable or impracticable due to scarcity of resources. So that's about all the case law we have at the moment. And, uh, you know, if, if, if a, a, a PAP that wasn't done progresses to a cancer, it, which progresses to a lawsuit, um, is, it, is it the physician's fault? Uh, unlikely. Uh, will the court see it that way? There is some precedent saying that they, they understand uh, the context in which we're working. Thank you. Um, a difficult question, <laughs> certainly. Um, Bruce, I, I think it would be important just for, for Derek to maybe review how context and resources is really factors into the, how the college reviews complaints. Because it's one thing to, am I going to be sued over? But it's another thing, am I going to be named in a college complaint? Mm -hmm. No, I, I would, um, in, in our discussions with our colleagues around the country, we, we are anticipating that there may be uh, a number of complaints coming forward um, from people who felt they have not received um, care appropriately uh, during the pandemic. Um, uh, I would, uh, I can't speak for our inquiry committee, but I, I would imagine that our, our inquiry committee uh, will be very sensitive to the issues that Dr. Herney just outlined. Um, and very practically, they will be looking at what was reasonable, what was rational, what was a standard of care, at a time of which, um, you know, we were um, we were living at the high phases um, of a crisis. So um, again, can't speak for our committee, but I imagine they will be quite sensitive to these issues. Thank you. 
You know, one question keeps coming back, uh, and, it, and it's worded in different ways. Um, can either you, Derek or Heidi, uh, talk about the differences between um, the college acting as a regulatory body versus an advocate for physicians? I'll share a couple of thoughts. Um, I mean, our, our mandate comes from law, and the, and the law tells us who we advocate for, and, and that's the public of British Columbia. So, so when we think of our, our mission, and again, our, our laser-like focus on that mission, that's our primary lens of advocacy. Um, that said, we're not we're not blind or deaf. We we are very aware of the stresses that the profession is going through. Um, Dr. Oda can speak to how um, that advocacy voice gets used in some different ways in her work. Yeah, we. I would say that our role is to support the profession. It's not to advocate for the profession, and um, we. Uh, so, for example, when the public health officer issues their directive, our role is to communicate and operationalize that so, for physicians so that they can understand. We know physicians get up in the morning and they want to do the best job and do the right thing. And that's where we support. But we do approach it very much on that laser focus of what is the public interest and uh, what is uh, going to contribute to safe patient care. Um, I... I, I'm sensing, I think, far more than I ever appreciated, actually, just how difficult the the standalone telemedicine platforms are for physicians in the province, and, and I'm really going to be taking that back. And so um, it's an issue I'm going to raise with the Ministry of Health, because I'm fortunate enough in my position to say, hey, uh, physicians are telling me that there are quality of care concerns, and I'd like to have that conversation at that table. But again, I, I approach that as what, what's best for the patient. And if I'm hearing there's quality of care concerns or it's impacting continuity of care, we need to look at that. But that's about as far as our advocacy would go. It's always framed in the what's right for the patient. How does this translate into public protection? Great. Thank you. Um, and I, I acknowledge the audience in being persistent um, with keeping on raising these questions. Um, we had a lot of them and they kept getting voted to the top. So thank you for that. Um, it, this is an interesting question. Um, you know, when you're seeing somebody in person or virtually you recognize faces and, and uh, certainly bodies, um, any thoughts on confirming patients' ident identity uh, when you're having only a telephone call with them? And you're perhaps uh, considering uh, giving or taking some confidential information. Um, use your professional judgment. <laughs> Sorry, to be, no, I don't mean to be flippant, but it it is a risk. And um, just to, to give a very practical example around this, we know that nursing homes have prevented physicians from coming on site. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, people needed assessments for the purposes of completion of medical assistance and dying. And we said, we think you got to use a technology that allows you to visually identify the patient as well as talk to them. And, it, and for something like 
finding the, yourself on the right side of a criminal code amendment, you've you got to be using something that's got both an audio and a visual, whereas there are other times that it is probably entirely appropriate to do that over the phone. But again, it's, 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 it's context specific, it's going to be risk assessed, and it's going to be in the context of what is it that the patients care that they need and what you're going to be doing for them. And um, uh, I, 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 I recognize that probably most physicians, because we kind of went from a normal Monday office to a Friday shutter down, have probably been using more telephone for virtual care than they have been yeah. some other kind of platform. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, there, there are shortcomings to that, but, I, but at the same time, I recognize people have simply done the best that they can. Um, some care is better than no care. And um, we're just, uh, Derek, I mean, we're not seeing a lot of complaints related to, to that aspect of care, are we? We are not, and uh, we've, we've heard some uh, people to call in to ask about some of the innovative ideas that they've had. And, and I, I think that's what's going to emerge very quickly is we're going to see the profession develop some ways that will work well to do this, um, whether it's, you know, uh, what's, your, what's your date of birth, uh, when was the last time I saw you, uh, you know, I developing questions in advance. I, I would imagine that we'll be coming up with those things. But, but no, we haven't had um, a, a flurry of concerns or complaints about that. Thank you. Um, this is, uh, I think you probably answered this uh, to some degree, but um, certainly uh, it, it's it's a nuance in a previous question um, where um, there's certainly some physicians who, because of age or health problems, may be at more risk if they were to contract COVID-19. Um, and um, what are the what is the guidance that you would provide to those physicians who feel like not in-person care uh, because of the risk to their own health? I'm happy to, to jump in. Uh, I think that uh, nobody, nobody is going to force you to work. And uh, if, if you have uh, uh, commitments to ER, hospital shifts, uh, it's important to, to talk with your department chief or talk with your chief of staff and just say that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm worried about my own health here. And is there a way I can contribute to the pandemic that doesn't put me on the front line? Is there a way I can help with, with virtual care? And, uh, and being reasonable and not drawing a line in the sand and saying, I'm not going to do this, uh, and negotiating with your, with your colleagues, with your department, and with your hospital and or clinic is the, uh, is the way to go about that. I think, I think this would be a good time for, you know, for physicians to raise that concern directly with their, their own primary care provider, their care team. Uh, um, I mean, it's it's understandable that uh, people are going to be fearful and anxious and have very practical issues that need to be looked at carefully. So I, I would encourage that, and, uh, and of course, use the resources of the uh, you know the physician health program of doctors of BC and other resources that they need to help work through those uh, those decisions. And and I presume, as I think somebody had mentioned earlier, there needs to be a provision. Uh, for the patients to be cared for appropriately if someone is not able to provide in-person care themselves, that they need to be able to arrange with 
somebody or some other uh, facility to be able to provide that where it's appropriate. Absolutely. We've heard we've heard many, many beautiful stories actually in the past week or two of those solutions being found of, of the profession coming together to support each other when that's a practical issue. Mm -hmm. um, a comment here, I think that's quite interesting uh, about um, physicians from other jurisdictions uh, providing care through virtual care uh, platforms to BC residents. Uh, what is the college's position on that? Uh, any comments to that? So this is an out-of-province physician using a virtual platform providing care to a BC resident. Uh, so um, we we don't have a... Um, we're not going to prosecute a physician who's licensed in Alberta for doing telemedicine into BC for practicing medicine without a license. We, we think that's, that's ridiculous, right? And being overly bureaucratic. Um, we know that there are physicians across Canada who, you know, like maybe it's in the university of Toronto network or it's uh, they're the experts in a certain type of surgical procedure or cancer work. And it's entirely acceptable and appropriate for them to assess a patient in British Columbia. And we know that if we get a complaint from the BC patient, we'll just put it in another envelope and send it over to the CPSO and they can deal with it. That's also where the records lives. We also know that, that, um, there are many places in British Columbia where the care flow is actually back to Alberta to get care. So patients who live in the eastern part of British Columbia may go to the cancer agency in Calgary. Uh, people from Fort St. John may go, go over to Grand Prairie. And it makes absolute sense for physicians who are duly licensed in one province to be providing care to the other. And they often actually have some kind of continuing relationship for it. I think this really gets back to that sticky thing about what about these virtual platforms only? And why is it that somebody in, with an Ontario license can be doing this? And um, I actually had a, an, a, an exchange of emails today with the medical services plan to find out what was happening. Thought that might be useful information to have tonight. And all I can say is it's, it's on their radar, but it's a, a matter that has to be addressed through the insurance company and how they choose to pay physicians. It's not really a regulatory issue. Um, I think that we would look bureaucratic, unnecessarily so, if we expected every physician in Canada who might do telemedicine for good and valid reasons into BC to have a license in BC. And we, we don't have national licensure, probably national licensure is a long way off since the federal government doesn't run healthcare, it's the province. But at the same time, um, we know that somebody who's duly licensed in another province is accountable in that province. And if a complaint comes up, uh, we, we can prosecute, vice versa. But it is, but, but it is how, who gets to paid to do it and how they get paid. And I think it's really a payment issue and one that it properly belongs with the doctors of BC and the medical services plan. Well, I... I um... Thank you. And uh, you've actually um, tried to uh, handle some uh, tricky questions and obviously uh, one around the virtual care platforms, the standalone ones that is high on people's minds um, and certainly is something that 
uh, people see as, as an issue. And to the audience, again, I acknowledge that there, that was a question that was recognized. And uh, Heidi has said that uh, she will uh, advocate as far as the College of Physicians and Surgeons can, and certainly uh, the doctors of BC uh, and or other provincial associations uh, have advocates uh, that should be approached uh, about this uh, and made aware of this uh, to be able to work with the physicians on their behalf. Um, at, we're at uh, about six minutes to go and I just wanted to give each of you an opportunity to um, you know, a couple key messages uh, that from things you've heard about or things that you've been thinking about that you could leave with the audience tonight. So Derek, do you want to start in and um, yours, and then we'll go to Lisa and Heidi. Happy to share a couple of thoughts. I think I think the overall thought I'd like to communicate is um, is a deep respect for the hard work that everyone's done in a pandemic. Um, um, we talked to to many registrants over the course of the day, and um, it's clear that um, people have been very courageous, um, dignified patient-focused, um, determined in their work. And I don't think we can lose sight of that. Uh, I think that's something that, uh, as we hopefully look back someday, the profession will stand very proud of the way that it has uh, risen to this challenge. I think the other piece uh, is uh, this is a time of incredible nimbleness in the profession. Um, um, and uh, we are being challenged to, uh, to make decisions and change practices and adapt in ways that are unprecedented. And the profession seems to be quite, quite ready to do so. So, you know, the college would want to do everything we can to, to help with the heavy lifting of that, um, to make things make good sense for patients, um, while also making sure that, you know, care is excellent and safe. Um, so um, I think those would be the two thoughts I'd like to share. Thanks, Derek. Lisa? Uh, I I don't want to recap what I've already uh, what I've already talked about. I mean, we've we've talked about virtual care considerations and what does it mean to be a reasonable physician. Um, I'd just like to to leave this on a positive note and uh, uh, again recognize that there are ethical frameworks, there are protocols and policies that are out there. You're not facing this alone. And uh, if you if you need assistance, don't hesitate to call the CMPA. And uh, it's these are unprecedented times, and uh, there is no case law, and uh, we're all in this uh, in this uncharted territory together. Uh, so be kind, <laughs> be calm, <laughs> and I can't remember the last one. <laughs> Stay safe. Be safe. Be safe. Be safe. Yeah. Be safe. Heidi. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you to UBC CPD for the opportunity to speak this evening. Um, I, I'm absolutely um, uh, gobsmacked uh, that you can get uh, almost a thousand people signing up to a webinar. That's that's just um, amazing, and it's it's been just an incredible opportunity again to to work with uh, with. Dr. Honey with CMPA, uh, we think that they're a valuable partner in contributing to safe patient care in, uh, in British Columbia. Um, the profession has pivoted and, and put an enormous amount of effort into being agile, flexible, 
and what a golden opportunity to transform the healthcare system in British Columbia. Um, it's it's been stressful. I, I get the anxiety. Uh, people have been creative. Um, you know, people's own personal health was was um, you know on the line. Uh, people have rolled up their sleeves. They've done the right thing. And meanwhile, people have found that the usual way of of being able to provide had the roadblock put in. And how is that going to work? So, again, a golden opportunity to to grab. Um, I think is the opportunity to embed virtual care into your practice. And if you look at, you know, like Kaiser Permanente or Group Health Cooperative, uh, Intermountain Health, any of those kind of health systems, they've done a fabulous job of really making it patient-centered in the patient's interest. And they actually get a lot more care by com combining both virtual care and, and that face-to-face -face care. So how can we how can we capitalize on that? How can we move that forward? And I take away a commitment to look at how we as a college can be addressing the quality aspects around virtual care so that those things that we know are near and dear to good patient care, which is continuity of care and follow-up and good advice and medical homes like, to make that really work. Well, thank you, all of you. I, and I'm sure from myself and from the audience, we'd love to continue hearing more from this incredible panel. Um, we've reached 90 minutes. We do have to stop, even though there's still over 100 questions. I'd really like to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, Dr. Honey, Dr. Otter, and Dr. Puttister. Um, you, you, you're all remarkably dedicated professionals and, and exceptional educators. Thank you for taking the time from your very busy lives, especially Dr. Honey, now 11.30 at night, um, to answer all the questions I'm sure from myself and the audience, we all appreciate it. I also like to thank you, the audience, for attending and hope this session was of value to you. I really hope that you'll take a few moments now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to be able to abstain your study credits and provide feedback on tonight's webinar. And finally, I thought some of you might like to know about and register for some of the other webinars we're facilitating in the next few weeks. There's the COVID-19 Rural Rounds. Um, the next webinar is on Thursday, May 14th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, managing COVID-19 patients in the rural emergency room, diagnosis to transport and everything in between. And then there's the RHC webinar series. Uh, this is a new series hosted by the Rural Coordination Center of BC, and it's going to offer three, th three free webinars for rural practitioners on Wednesday evenings this month, May 13th, 20th, 27th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And topics will include management of acute respiratory distress in suspected COVID-19 patient, delivering culturally safe care during a pandemic, and ask anything, rural emergency topics during COVID-19. Um, a final reminder that a link to our resource hub will be included in the post-webinar email that you will receive shortly, and that we will be having a WorkSafe BC webinar uh, next Thursday, um, May 14th at the same time. So again, thank you to the panel. Thank you to the audience again everybody for joining us. Have a good night. Be calm, be kind, and be safe. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. 
And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis, spelled M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. And please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 